right. Have you got my slideshow up? It has come up. Good. All right. Yep. Uh, right. Okay. Well, the passage for this evening is Galatians chapter 1. Sorry, Galatians chapter 3, verses uh, 1 down to 18. Uh, and if you like a nice title to your talks, I thought I'd title this a good old-fashioned hymn. I'm sure you recognize the words, Nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 1 says this, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would, like to I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit to work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Amen. Well, I know that you're probably all fed up with Zoom after this length, so I don't want to go on for, for too long, but there's a, one slide I want to show you to begin with. My mother and father, about three years ago, were having a bit of a clear-up. Uh, they're getting older now. Dad will be 93 soon, and he's trying to cut down all his paperwork. Uh, my mother handed me an envelope with a packet of all my school reports in it, all the way from when I first went to school, age five, up to 18. And, and for those who can't see, there's a picture on the screen of a school report when I was 14. I was going through a bit of a rebellious phase at that time. And I don't know if any of you can read the words there, but it says things like this, slow to get down to work, 
but sometimes he does achieve something. He's finding it difficulty with the work, rather weak. He must make greater efforts if he is to keep up, lacking in commitment and efforts, basically easily distracted. And I've gone from bad to worse, uh, and I hope that the grades will shock me into getting more solid work done. You see, it did, I was 14. It was thankfully a rebellious phase that didn't last for too much longer. But you know, when we're at school, we sort of get marked there and the two grades we had, one was performance results and the other one for effort. And all the time it's a question of work harder, work harder and you'll achieve. You'll get into the university that you want to. And if you get into the right university and you work hard and get a good degree, you'll get the right sort of job. And you know, we then go to university and we work hard and we get a job. And in my job, we have performance reviews. And we have to say how we've performed and how hard we think we're working. And then I went to the, the gym uh, and, and I had a bit of a personal trainer when I first started trying to lose a little bit of weight. And he used to shout at me, work harder, work harder. You're not working hard enough. And, and it was all that feeling that if we work hard, then we'll begin to achieve what we're looking for. And the sad thing is what is true in very often our secular life then permeates into our Christian life and also affects our belief and our practices, that if we work hard and we do the right things, then that's going to be acceptable to God. God will approve of us and we'll be fine. But the problem was that there wasn't the right theology. And because they didn't have the right theology, that was affecting their practice as well. And Paul, as he writes to the Galatians, identifies three things. A problem. The first of all, he says, is that you've been deceived by faith or works of the law. And in verse 1, it says, who has bewitched you? And if you look into the original Greek there, the, the first uh, word there, who, is a singular thing. There was probably one, more than one false teacher, but he doesn't put it in the plural. Paul puts it in the singular, who has bewitched you? Why? Because he knew that at the end of the day, the false teaching didn't just come from humans, but it came from the devil. John 8, verse 44, the devil is a liar and the father of lies. Genesis 3, verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty and said to the woman, did God really say? You see, because all this stemmed from the devil. He's always been a liar. He's always been a cheat. He's always been a deceiver of the brethren, and he hasn't changed since the time of the Garden of Eden. He bends and he distorts God's truth to make us doubt what is right and to make us lose sight of what is essential. And he says there is a problem. How is the problem started? Well, it started with the devil. So what's the essence of that problem? How are they deceived? Well, verse 11, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. And the problem has come up because although they've accepted salvation by faith in God's promise and God's provision in sending Jesus to die upon the cross, now they're seeking to add to and to say that extra things are needed. They needed circumcision. They needed to act within the law to keep the food laws, the festivals, to have the Sabbath observance. And they were trying to add to the simple gospel. And although it sounds innocent and almost it sounds biblical in some ways, it's very dangerous. Perhaps it, part of it was linked with their sort of national identity, a bit like the Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland. Very little of it has got to do with religion, but more to national identity. And in fact, he's saying the law is not necessary. 
Now I've got a picture there, if you can't see it, of a picture of a thermometer. Uh, they've all become very familiar things to us. In fact, when I go to work every day in the morning, I have to sign in and I have to take my temperature. And if our temperature is anything over and above normal, we have to go home again. We're not allowed to stay. You see, the temperature is there and it tells us whether we are ill or whether we're well, but it doesn't actually provide any medicine to cure us if we're not very well. So the thermometer is there to tell us how ill we are, but it doesn't do any good. And if we want to do some good, we know we then go to the medicine cupboard. And despite the fact there's only Val and I living at home, we keep ours locked under key. But I know if I'm not well, I need to go in to take some medicine. And he said, the problem is, you see, the law can tell you how ill you are. It tells you of your need for a savior, but it doesn't actually do any good. If you try and live by the law, it won't actually save you. We need something else. We need Christ. We need his acceptance. There's a lovely little phrase that sometimes we use at work is that what we look for is not performance-based acceptance, but acceptance-based performance. And I suppose it's, it sounds a bit like management speak to begin with, doesn't it? But what does it mean? Well, it means performance-based accepted is that if you live up to a certain standard, if you achieve your targets, then you'll be accepted as a valued member of the team. And that may work for a while, but it causes stress. It causes problems. And it causes people, either if they do accept it, feel a bit smug with themselves, or if they don't, the fact that they're never going to do it and that they're failures. The Bible says, look, it's not performance-based acceptance. If we reach a certain standard, if we achieve a certain performance, then God will accept us. But it's instead we have acceptance-based performance, which is essentially very different. What does that mean? It means that at the end of the day, that we are accepted by God, we're loved by him. And because of that love, because we're in relationship with him and we want to please him, then we seek to do our best. We seek to live as best as we can in order to please him. So it's not performance-based acceptance. It's not a question of keeping the law to make us acceptable to God, but it's the fact that we've been accepted in Christ makes us want out and go and to live for him. So the problem was a deception that comes from the devil. It was a deception of theology that they were trying to rely upon the law. But what is the consequence? Well, it's very serious. What does he say? Twice he calls them foolish. I don't know what you'd feel like if you're in church and somebody stood up and pointed at you and said, you're a bunch of fools. But, you know, my wife often says to me, Phil, you're a bit silly, aren't you? But there's a big difference between being silly and being foolish. Men are often silly. We don't grow up, perhaps. But if we are foolish, then at the end of the day, it can have some very dire consequences. I suppose if you're in a driving parlance, that if you were being foolish, if you drove too fast, if you've been drinking, you drove without a seatbelt, it would have potentially devastating consequences. And that's what he's saying here to them as well. Look, understand how foolish you're being. That by having this problem, by trying to believe in the works of the law, then at the end of the day, there could have some very serious consequences. And to counter this argument, what does he do? Well, the first thing he does is he points them to their own experience. Verse 3, after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Verse 5, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you have heard? I know it's fantastic, isn't it, that we at, at Belmont, I'm sure like you do as well, when we have baptisms, people come and they give their testimonies. And it's fantastic that we can look back to the basics of how we received 
Christ. We weren't asked to do anything or to achieve a certain standard, but simply to accept what Christ had done for us, that the gospel is enough to save us, and it's also enough to keep us as well. And he points them to their own experience. And secondly, he then points them to Scripture as well. You see, because the Jews believed in the law of Moses. But what Paul says to them is, look, several hundred years before Moses, there was Abraham. And what does the Bible say? Well, in John 8, verse 56, it says, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Why? Because verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What did God promise Abraham? Well, Abraham was getting a bit old. He was childless. And yet God promised him an heir, a seed. And as a picture or a, an illustration, he told him to go outside and count the stars. And he said, your descendants are going to be like those stars. Now, those weren't just physical descendants, but they were spiritual descendants. I don't know whether you're like me, but when I was younger, we used to sing a chorus. Father Abraham has many sons, many sons as Father Abraham. I am one and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. And that's true. You see, we are spiritual descendants of Abraham. He didn't have the law because that didn't come for several hundred years later. He hadn't been circumcised. And yet when God made that promise to him, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And I love that phrase. It doesn't say he believed in God, but that he believed God. And when we speak to people about what it means to be a Christian, there is a big difference between believing in God and believing God. See, because if we believe God and we believe his word, not just in his existence, then we have faith in him. And that's what Abraham had. And that's what made the difference in Abraham's life. And that's what made the difference in the lives of those Galatians. And I think one of the best illustrations, and I may have said it to you before, is that faith, you know, is a bit like flying. I, I'm not a great flyer. You know, I can believe in the concept of flying. I know how, a little bit of how it works, but, you know, I, I don't like to get onto a plane. I think, you know, with an extra 18-odd stone in me sat on the plane, how on earth is it ever going to get off the ground? I remember when I went to France some years ago with my friend Pete. Pete's an engineer. And as we got onto the plane, I was beginning to sweat a bit. You know, my palms were sweaty, but my mouth was dry. And Pete said, what's wrong, Phil? And I said to him, well, I don't like flying, Pete. You know, I, I was so nervous, you know, that when we got onto the plane, I'd already bought a copy of the Daily Telegraph. But as I got on British Airways, they gave us another copy. Of the, so I sat there with two copies of the Daily Telegraph on my lap. Why I thought I could read two copies, but I don't know. And I said to Pete, I'm, I'm sure this pain is going to get there, but I'm not sure that I really believe it. You know, and as you go down the runway, you sort of have that feeling in the pit of your stomach. Is it really going to make it? But as the plane gently takes off and you sort of feel that little lift, then you realize actually that by doing something about it, you can believe it. You can sit there, you can look out at the plane and say, I believe it. I'm sure it's been designed to do that. But it's not until you put it into practice that you sit in that seat. You may have doubts, you may have fears, but by believing in it, that's what makes the difference. And Paul says that's what you need, not just to have faith, uh, not to belief in the, in the works of the law, but to have faith in God. So he points them to their own experience. He points them to Scripture. And what lessons do we learn from this? Well, I think the first lesson we need to learn is this, that we must understand what the gospel is. 
You see, because these people probably hadn't actually seen Christ being crucified. It was several years earlier, and it happened in a distant place. But he said that they have seen it in their mind's eye. Somebody has preached to them. Their eyes have been opened, and they've seen them for themselves. For the gospel is the portraying of Christ crucified. Seeing that as a number of churches that I've preached at, we preach Christ and Christ crucified. You see, being a Christian isn't a general description or instruction on Jesus and history, but it's Christ crucified, as though it's put up on a billboard for all to see. One of the films that we saw during lockdown was a film called Three Billboards Outside of Epping, Missouri. I don't know whether you've seen it. It's quite a harrowing film in some ways, but it's a woman who's trying to get justice for a daughter who suffered an horrendous crime. And she doesn't think the police are doing anything about it. So she puts up three billboards, or they're already there. She hires them and puts up signs on them trying to get justice for her daughter. She wants the whole town to see what it's about. And that's a bit like we as Christians. We want the world to see. What do we want the world to see? We want the world to see that Christ is our Savior. We want to portray him as being crucified, to say that he is death upon the cross is all that we need to be accepted by Christ. So we need to show what the gospel is. It needs to be what, secondly, the lesson we can learn is what the gospel offers. And it says that those who rely on faith are blessed in verse 9. How are we blessed if we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior? Well, it's a double blessing that we get. First of all, for all Christians, is that in verse 8, we have justification. It's just as if we've never sinned that Christ accepts us for who we are for what his son has done upon the cross. And secondly as well, it's also that we have, in verse 9, that we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. The two aren't separated, but they always come together. We're not justified and later receive the Holy Spirit, but they come at the same time. And Ephesians has the thing that we have his Spirit guaranteeing our inheritance, which is to come. And one of the commentators put it in a lovely way, that the Holy Spirit is the lover's engagement ring, guaranteeing our inheritance, which is to come. So we can learn what the gospel is. We can learn what the gospel offers. And then lastly, we have this, what the gospel requires. And what does it require? Well, it doesn't receive anything, it requires anything at all, but as only to accept and believe what Christ has done for us. It's the gospel of the Old Testament, and it's the gospel of the two New Testament. It's the same. It was true for Adam. It was true for Abraham. And it's true for ourselves that all we have to do is to accept what Christ has done for us. I've lost count the number of times I've spoken to people about what it means to be a Christian. And I explain to them what Christ is on offering. They say, well, what do I have to do? You know, I'm very tempted to turn around and say, take out your checkbook and give us a thousand pounds and we'll guarantee a place in heaven. You know, I think our treasurer might be quite happy with that, but I'm not sure the Lord would be. You see, you don't have to pay for it. You don't have to earn it, but it's the free gift of salvation. I think perhaps if I said to people, you had to earn it, you know, um, one of the, we've walked up the three highest peaks in Britain. Our next trip, hopefully next year, will be over to Ireland when we want to walk up the highest mountain in Ireland. And I'm told, though, that Catholics have to do it without shoes on, barefooted, in order to try and to pay a penance to get that. No, I'm sorry, you're not going to catch me walking up a mountain with sharp stones in it and bare feet. But, you know, the thousands of Catholics do it every year, trying to earn forgiveness, trying to earn God's favor. 
But the Bible says that's not necessary. We don't have to do it for Christ has done it all for us. There was a problem. They thought they had to earn their salvation. But you know, when God saves us, it's enough that his simple gospel keeps us as well. And whilst we may want to live to please him, to do the best that we can, we don't have to earn his favor. Kevin Dyer has written a lovely book called Must the Brethren Die? And he puts into there three things in three different broad spheres. First of all, as brethren, there are things that we believe, but you know, they only come from tradition. They don't actually essential. There are things that are also distinctive, that good that we do, but again, they're not essential. And what he boils it down to is the fact that we can have uh, fellowship, if you like, with any other Christians who believe the gospel. That is all that we actually need. You know, and I've been amazed at the number of people I've met who come from different church backgrounds who I wouldn't have thought that I'd get on with. And sometimes I suppose we don't necessarily have a lot in common. But I remember going to the big church day out. And when we got there, they said this about two or three years ago. I said, well, where should we pitch our tent? And they said, oh, wherever you like. There's a few sections that are cordoned off. He said, but apart from that, you can go wherever you like. And we put our tent up. And I found out that we were uh, camped next to the charismatic Catholic renewal movement. And uh, when darkness came, they had a lovely fire pit and they were gathered around their fire pit. They had a couple of guitars and they were singing choruses and we went over to join them. I'm not sure if they appreciated my singing, you know, but they were the same choruses that we sing. Do I agree with what they preach or what they say? Well, no, on a lot of things, but we could agree together on what was important. And that was the simple gospel that Christ died once for sin for all. And that's all that we need to do is to believe that Christ died for us. There's a lovely song called The Wonder of the Cross by Vicki Beeching. I just want to end by just reading you this song. And it says this, so precious sight, my Savior stands, dying for me with outstretched hands. Oh, precious sight, I love to gaze, remembering salvation's day. Though my eyes linger on this scene, may passing time and years not steal the power with which it impacts me, the freshness of its mystery. May I never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. May I see it like the first time, standing as a sinner lost, undone by mercy and left speechless, watching wide-eyed at the cost. May I never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. Behold the God-man crucified, the perfect sinless sacrifice, as blood ran down those nails and wood. History was split in two. Yes, history was split in two. Behold the empty wooden tree, his body gone alive and free. We sing with everlasting joy, for sin and death have been destroyed. Sin and death have been destroyed. May I never lose the wonder the wonder of the cross. May I see it like the first time, standing as a sinner lost, undone by mercy and left speechless, watching wide-eyed at the cross. May I never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross, because that's all that we need, the cross of Christ, nothing else, simply to believe what Christ has done for us. And the devil had gone into this Galatian church the devil had gone into some of those false teachers or was trying to draw them away from the simplicity of the gospel. And if anyone ever does that, all we need to say is like Paul is, no, look back to your own experience, look back to scripture and see that is all that we need. 
to proclaim Christ and Christ crucified. Amen. Thank you, Phil. Are you happy to pray or would you like me to? Uh, yeah, happy to do so. Yeah, amen. I didn't know whether you had another good song for us. <laughs> Let's pray. Amen. Father, we thank you that you love us just as we were lost in our sin. You loved us so much that you sent your only begotten son to die upon that cross for us. You couldn't have given anything best than your very own son. And that was the love that you had for us. And as he died there, he could cry out, it is finished. The work of salvation was done. There's nothing more that we need to add to it. Nothing more that we need to bring of ourselves, but simply to cling to what was done upon that cross for us by Jesus Christ. Our Father, help us never to lose the wonder of what was done upon that cross. The Son of God, taken from the Godhead, the sin of the world, my sin placed upon him that he could cry out in anguish and agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was paying the penalty for our sin. Lord, help us never to complicate things. Help us never to lay anything on top of that. But to always remember that is all that we need. Christ has done it all. Christ has paid for us. Oh, we may we never lose the wonder of the cross. We don't need to bring anything, but simply trust in what Christ has done for us. Amen.